Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 617 with my guest and friend, Thomas Hayes. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, I've been reading this, Jan Wenner, who, the guy who created or co-created uh, the magazine Rolling Stone, very influential figure of the from late 60s through probably even the 90s um very driven guy he came he put out an autobiography that i started reading and it started annoying me so much that i switched to a book that somebody wrote about him which was originally supposed to be an uh, authorized biography gave, gave this guy access to all his personal materials and when this guy turned in his manuscript to Jan Wenner, uh, he's like, I can't, you know, I can't authorize this. And so the guy released it without, um, you know, Jan Wenner. God, this is a long story. Anyway, my point being, it's a fascinating glimpse. And in, in, in the, the name of uh, Jan Wenner's book is like a Rolling Stone. The name of this other guy's book about Jan Wenner is called Sticky Fingers. And it is uh, a fascinating look into the life of somebody addicted to more, uh, addicted to money, um, fame, power, and the lengths that people will go to who make that their priority. Um, and I don't know, it's just, a, it, it made me so grateful that I appreciate my life and I don't feel this insatiable bottomless pit that I'm constantly trying to fill with things that aren't going to fill me, like drugs and alcohol and you know, all the stuff I've tried. And not that I'm the model of serenity, but it just made me very, very grateful uh, that I, I want the life that I have. I think one of the, one of the worst curses that you can have is a warped perspective on priorities. And anyway, that the book Sticky Fingers just kind of drove it, really drove it home to me. And I'm only about halfway through it, but, um, and another piece of news that I, I want to share with you guys is I did not win the Powerball. 
fucking bullshit. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mellow and he's a teenager and about his ADD he writes, it's like trying to listen to someone give you instructions to disarm a bomb while you're on a roller coaster that never stops. That is a good one, man. That is a good one. Thank you for that. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Buck. And he writes, my biggest fear is that seeking therapy will open, and he is 73 years old, uh, is that seeking therapy will open psychic wounds from my childhood and force me to confront trauma that I've forgotten. I grew up in a dysfunctional household with an alcoholic father who was at times abusive and a codependent mother who I believe did her best given the circumstances. Generations of men before me have been alcoholics, and the cycle continued with me when I started drinking in high school. I continue to drink daily, and I'm in so much pain that the only solution I see is to keep drinking to stay numb and tamp down those bad thoughts. I know I am slowly but surely drinking myself to death, and I know the healthy thing to do would be to get sober and get into therapy. I suppose I fit the archetype of the baby boomer who keeps a stiff upper lip and doesn't believe in therapy, but I have to face facts. I've never hugged my children, nor have I ever told them that I love them. They have never seen me cry. The raw vulnerability of it all brings me on the verge of panic, and that is what I fear will come from seeking therapy. Wow. Wow. I'm so glad you found the podcast, Buck, and I'm so glad that you are finally starting to unearth your fears. I mean, that is a necessary part. Whether you follow up with this, with getting sober or not, just being cognizant of what's going on inside you is a fucking gift. And I really hope you do. I really hope you reach out for help, whether it's therapy or a support group. Um, and I hope you can get to the point where you can tell your kids that you love them and you can cry in front of them, um, especially on their birthdays. When they're, when they're getting ready to blow out the candles, just really fucking let it go. Let it go. Just bring this party to a standstill. That's my recommendation. Again, I'm not a therapist. But in all seriousness, Buck, thank you for that. That really, that really touched me. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself This Almond Joy Sucks. Almond Joy might be the worst candy bar. I don't even know if it qualifies as candy. Total waste of time. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little worked up right now about how shitty Almond Joy is. And I'm going to try to get through the rest of the podcast thinking about that, you know? I got to say, I think mounds might be fucking worst. Just a dump truck of shitty coconut. Ugh. Mars, are you the one that makes these? I cast you to hell. I cast you and all your, you know, quote, healthy, unquote, candy. Was it meant to be healthy? I don't know. It tastes healthy, which means it fucking blows and you blow. And please never make another candy bar. Wow. I don't know where this is all coming from. I think it's from not winning Powerball. This is from the, uh, oh, <laughs> I already announced it. Uh, this guy calls himself Almond Joy Sucks. 
And he asks, have you always had such a dark sense of humor? Uh, I think I have at least since, uh, I think, grade school or early high school when I became very, very cynical. Uh, do you think people can be put off by it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I didn't even know for the longest time how dark and cynical my sense of humor was. I think it's it's a little uh, less um, angry than it used to be. But uh, when something dark happens, whether it's in the news or wherever, my brain immediately starts writing jokes. I suppose it's a way of coping with it. Um, He writes, the only reason I ask is because I love dark humor. I joke constantly about my dad dying of ass cancer, and I sometimes point to the sky after a joke at his expense and go, sorry, pops. I appreciate that. Uh, this is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself waiting for my Powerball numbers to come through. And she says, uh, I just finished listening to the podcast with Katie Morton. She said something that triggered a lot of feelings for me. So what did I do? Like any good person with OCD, I cleaned my kitchen floor for 30 minutes. I might not feel like I've got a handle on my anger, but I've got that floor right where I want it. In any case, I have a question, comment, perspective to share. Katie said that no one should be in therapy for years. I always cringe when I hear people say that. I'm someone who has been in therapy for years, and I can confidently say that I am exactly where I need to be. I get the reasoning behind the concept of not prolonging therapy or continuing to go out of habit when you aren't making progress, but I also worry that blanket statements about what is normal in therapy can make, in normal as in quotes, can make people feel shamed or judged, even if that isn't the intent. My therapist told me recently that we are long distance runners, and I love that so much. I've made a ton of progress in my therapy, and I also know I have a ton of work ahead of me. I worry that when people like me hear that therapy shouldn't take years, we start to feel like maybe we're doing it wrong. And trauma survivors always think we're doing it we're doing everything wrong. I don't want to come off as critical of your guest, but I think it's important to remember that therapy isn't one size fits all. Some of us are running a marathon, and the only ones who should evaluate the time that is taking are the people in the therapeutic relationship. So for all the long haul therapy clients out there like me, keep fighting, keep showing up. Keep doing the work. Don't let anyone tell you it's taken too long. We are long distance runners, so keep running. Thank you for that. And I, I think that is a great uh, a great point. It is not a one-size-fits-all. And I've been in therapy uh, for years. And, it, you know, I think maybe what Kate, what Katie was, was saying that um, that working on one particular issue shouldn't take forever. Uh, Maybe I'm misinterpreting what she said, and maybe she truly does believe that shared therapy uh, shouldn't take years, you know, all issues combined, et cetera, et cetera. In which case, I would definitely agree uh, with what you wrote. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by last week's survey filler-outer Kimmy Kimmy Bobimi, and she asks, is there any way for us crazies that write into you to connect to each other? 
So often people write something to you and I think, hey, get out of my head. No, wait. I mean, please do come in. I so rarely have visitors. I would say the forum would be a great place um, and people can comment. There are threads on the podcast episodes each particular episode. And I don't know how up-to-date it is. I don't really have much to, to do with the forum other than, you know, providing uh, a hosting platform where it can run. There's a guy named Manny Mo who kind of uh, runs it. So you can always fire a question to him. He's kind of the administrator. But I would say the forum would be a good place to, uh, to do that because uh, people, uh, I specifically keep these surveys anonymous. I don't even collect IP addresses because... I want people to find it, to have a place where they can um, freely share uh, all the stuff that is is hard to share and and feel safe uh, doing that. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, filled out again by our friend, This Almond Joy Sucks. And uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, he writes, I tell myself that I will never be able to escape the continuous cycle of binge drinking almost daily. I tell myself I am fat, lazy, too old to find a girlfriend. I make fun of the size of my head, calling myself Irish hamhead. I do believe that you can um, break the cycle of drinking, but it, at some point you may have to say to yourself, do I want to continue to keep trying to break this cycle by my own or do I want to start opening up to other people and hear how they did it and connect it to them through that very issue um and uh yeah those mean thoughts in your head those are all those are just all they're nothing but thoughts bouncing around your delicious banquet of ham for a head This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I have been using BetterHelp for probably about six years, and uh, I have a great relationship with my therapist, Heidi. Uh, I like the input she gives me. I like the perspective she gives me. And, uh, you know, our, our brains do not come with user manuals. And I tried for the first 25 years of my life uh, trying to wing it, and it did not work out well. So it's nice to have it's nice to have some objective input uh, by people that are experts in the field of uh, brains and hearts. So, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched three million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available one hundred percent online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And be sure to include the slash metal part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what 
makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Me. And about living with an abuser, she writes, My marriage was like swimming with someone who kept dunking me underwater and laughing. And my response was to come up gasping for air and asking if he was all right. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with my buddy Thomas Hayes, who I've known for, I don't know, maybe seven years, yeah, something seven, like that. Seven. But we've really gotten to know each other in the last four years. Yeah, sure. Um, you're a sober guy. You've been sober how long? 28. And nuts for how many years? 47. <laughs> Thomas. Maybe 48 in the womb. Thomas is an amazing furniture maker uh, um he has his own gallery and it's uh i mean you've you've designed shit for apple yeah um i i don't know if the average person knows how difficult it is for somebody to m- just make a living yeah. uh making and selling their own furniture let alone crushing mm. it so i just want to acknowledge that uh, that so first so thomas hayes gallery if you want to see studio. His studio. studio sorry about that mm-hmm. um let's dive into your uh your nutty <laughs> your nutty life sure um first of all i want to i just want to say you know you're you are somebody that a lot of people in our support group myself included look up to <laughs> Because you're so naked about your <laughs> yeah. your foibles, yeah. Um, and yet you uh, you help so many people. And I really love when somebody can be 
both an example of what to do and what not to do. <laughs> because I think yeah. that's most of us. Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to like real life stuff, you know, I look for mentors because I learned that in recovery to look for mentors. Um, for a long time, I thought, you know, find the smartest winning guy. But then I learned that if somebody that you're looking up to has never been through like a bad stock market period or a divorce or something difficult, then they don't even know what their true colors are. So mm -hmm. um, I, I now and people sometimes think it's bragging. I now like talk about my failures and my problems because I feel like it makes me you know, more credible mm -hmm. to someone that they know I'm not, I'm not infallible. You know, I'm, I'm definitely just another guy at the end of the day, whatever it looks like on Facebook, Instagram, or otherwise, you know? And uh, I, I think it's also important to talk about a lot of the sickness that some of us in sobriety have, we keep inside our heads which is sometimes the best that that we can do. And I, I think most of the stuff that I've heard you share about is not necessarily actions that you've taken, but things your brain is telling you, say this, do this, do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm married with a woman for uh, married technically for a little over a year. We've been together five years and I've gotten really, really first time in my life good at not saying what I'm thinking. Um, and I know that if I did, it hasn't gotten much better up there over the years. I've just gotten better and better at both processing it, having pause, whatever. But, you know, with, with my wife and my four daughters, I'm very careful how I respond to them. And I try not to let my my feelings and my reactions sort of dictate my responses, I mm -hmm. think. But then I come to, you know, around you guys and I'm just like, I'm fucking nuts. I wanted to tell my wife to shut up. I wanted to tell her. And then I hang out with some of my sponsees who still do that mm -hmm. with their wives. Tell them like, you know, some highly critical body shaming or whatever because they're trying to help them, you know. Yeah, help her air out. air quotes. Yeah, help, help her it. out by telling her what's wrong with her body, and she can work on that, and that would be good. And I'm just like, I sit there and go, I'm so fucking grateful that I don't ever think that's a good idea. Those thoughts don't even mm -hmm. enter the possibility realm, you yeah. know, because it's just so harmful. It's harmful. It's, and, it's, it's mean. It's mean. Yeah, and I didn't see it that way before um, because I hadn't done that particular work of like, how am I really impacting everyone with what I say? Um, one of the things I want to talk about is your struggles with anger management. Before <laughs> before we sure. we get to that, though, I I want uh, you to paint a picture of your childhood. So. Um, so I was raised by a single mother. My father and mother separated when I was two, so I don't remember any of that. Um, my father, up until like age 30, never used drugs. Um, and he was a very dynamic person um, his whole life. Very outgoing, driven, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, just like me. Um, but when he touched drugs, he changed dramatically and became, I think, like a hell's angel, uh, like a meth thing. And um, I grew up with my single mother, who was a daily alcoholic and, you know, had really profusely bad um, just practices and ways of doing things that, you know, honestly, until her death, 
two years ago, I couldn't face at all. I couldn't face because we already had a good relationship because of our sobriety. But, um, you know, I was emotionally incested like really badly <laughs> to a point that I couldn't, I couldn't even look at until my mother passed because it was too painful. And I felt like I was betraying her mm-hmm. to acknowledge these things. And, and it changed who I was at a core level. And I've always been my whole life trying to make sense of that and trying to understand why I go to the places I go to. You know, I was driving here thinking I want to sneak off and go get Taco Bell. I just want to eat some sugar, like just something because I feel so bad being at this funeral this morning for a young man who died of an overdose at 19. And, you know, I we all have our go-tos, our vices, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the ones I got from my mom are definitely the most troubling, the most shameful um, things, you know, and growing up, my entire family was either alcoholic or cleaning up after the alcoholic. And, um, you know, it's like, I just grew up learning things that kids that I learned later, kids don't learn how to, you know, hide the smell of alcohol in your breath when you're driving and, um, you know, about getting arrested, you know, they would talk to me about like, Oh, when you get arrested, don't freak out. Don't talk. You know, this is the old arrested conversation. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was like, uh, it was just, we were very blue collar people. Nobody had been to college. Nobody had aspirations. It was like get a new boat or a motorcycle or something. That was like the, (laughs) the cool thing. And, you know, um, I grew up with this mom. My dad was lived in the town next to us when I was 17. His house blew up, um, from a rival who put a bomb on his porch and it was national news. And this was a rival biker gang. Yeah. Well, no, it was a guy in his biker gang that blew his house up. Oh, I see. He later died in prison, um, because but- of suicide because he turned state's evidence, the guy who blew his house up. Um, and then ensued like a year long battle between my dad and this guy playing out in the streets in the news, shooting at each other. My dad took a rocket launcher to his house to blow it up and they pulled him over for a burned out taillight, caught him with a, you know, anti tank weapon. <laughs> and, you know, this is just how I grew up when I was 12. Um, and I later learned, you know, on the topic of mental health, right? I later learned that when you're prepubescent or you're right at that place, right, where you're mm-hmm. developing in adolescence, if you witness extreme violence, it causes a brain injury. And I wholly believe that to be true after hearing all this stuff I heard about it because I um, awoke to my father, who they were divorced for all these years, um, came by and beat my mother and put a gun in her mouth. And I woke up to this noise and I went out and saw my mother with a gun in her mouth on the ground. And it it damaged my brain, you know. And the only thing I could describe it to was described really well is you literally see things differently. Like physically, things that you're looking at appear differently all the time than they do. Unrelated. People. Yeah, totally unrelated. And that, you know, that trauma response, that danger is imminent sort of thing, um, just has always followed me. I'm hyper vigilant. I'm always looking for violence. I'm always imagining scenarios happening. Then you add to that that I was raised by my mom who was beating me for my dad's transgressions and the things that he had done to her and the experience she had had as an alcoholic woman, you know, dysfunctional woman. 
Um, and, you know, I say these things about my mom. I love my mom so much. When she passed, we were best friends. But I say these things to help someone. And I know that my mom would want to have me say these things because she lived to help people. You know, so that's I'm not saying these things as a victim of my mom. Like I'm saying these things, you know, to be to be helpful. And it was so impossible to say them for me to really just say out loud the things that really happened um, that I'm not even mad about anymore. I'm just affected by these things. You know? Well, I remember when you called me when you were getting ready to go up for your mom's funeral mm-hmm. and all of these Memories were resurf- resurfacing not only about the emotional incesting by your your mom, but um, having been taken advantage of sexually by um, older girls yeah. when you were uh, a kid. Yeah, a lot of older girls. And until I looked at I read that book that you recommended, uh, Silently, Silently Seduced. Seduced, I didn't see connections between things. But, you know, without overstating it i think that we find ourselves right by no accident and repeating incidences right Mm -hmm. whether it's because my mom put me in dangerous places or because i was already sexualized by the age of four or five um, by my mother's inappropriate like nudity and sleeping with her in the bed and um just things that i didn't know i thought if somebody didn't touch your genitals or you touch Mm -hmm. theirs that it was like Okay, and it turns out upon learning things that, like, you know, we become sexualized through behaviors that Mm -hmm. aren't even sexual. You know, the daddy's little girl thing, or I was my mom's little husband, and I had to be there for her emotions, you know, and that sexualized me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you couple with that the ensuing beatings my mom would give me, followed by crying and loving touch and intimacy following a beating. How's that going to fuck you up? And then all the girls, you know, there was like five or six girls who had sex with me from age four to 11, let's say. And then I become a teenager and start pursuing sexual scenarios of my own. And, and how old roughly were were they? Um, the first group were 13, my sister and her friends. Um, and, you know, it took me so long to have any feelings about it. It was like a lump of bread in my throat. That I didn't have any. That's such water. a great description of just like I couldn't swallow, I couldn't get it out. It was just a lump in my throat, and you know I would talk to men about it, right, in recovery, and be like, "Hey, this happened," and you know some of them meaning well and not trying to be mean or anything, just said, "Oh, you're a lucky kid, you got to have sex with 13 year old girls." But that changed me. It changed me. Like I was already. In in an emotional incest scenario, and I'm already sexualized by age four and five. I see the world now sexually, and it's never been any different. Talk about the ways that you viewed sex as as you from when you were a kid to where you are today. Uh, you know, if you're comfortable sharing yeah, sure. about you know things that. Uh, that get you off, yeah, whether sure. they, whether it's a thought or uh, an act. Well, sure. I mean, I can talk both negative and I can, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it. So for me, it was this safe place because it wasn't the cycle I was in with my mom of love and intimacy and, and emotional um, enmeshment. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, playing, so to speak, and having 
you know, feeling good feelings and a touch and things like that and feeling wanted, right? That's mm-hmm. like the hugest thing I think is feeling wanted. And it set Especially me from older curls. Yeah, I sure. Mean, and, and it set me up for this, this like, I'm going to need to be validated all the time, every day from here on out as much as I can. And enough is never enough. And compliments hit me and they drain out of me like I'm a sieve. Um, and I just need more. And, you know, talking about sexually, what do, you know, I enjoy. That's a really good question in this setting, right? Because, And if you're not comfortable talking about it, because I know that's a big question to throw at somebody. It's not. I would say, you know, one of the things is I don't have a fetish, which I used to think, like, it's just me, right? But it's like when you are the victim, right, Mm -hmm. of... You know, older girls having sexual contact with you repetitively. I didn't develop my own things and interests. And then my mother would tell me, um, literally, this is one of the worst things is she would tell me about how men were like really evil and they were sexually selfish and they would not get women off and, and that she wanted to raise me as a corrective measure to the world of, you know, selfish sexual men who didn't care about women's no organs. Pressure. No I heard pressure. that stuff at six, seven, eight years old. And, you know, because of that, I think I don't, I'm just, you know, and I'm in a really good marriage with a very um, normal, almost woman, which is very uncomfortable that she wants to be close and have intimacy and and have sex with me. And it's like, I'm really was comfortable with, you know, almost like having a, a hate sex relationship. Not what I want to call it love hate. I want to call it sex hate, right? It's like um, build tension through fighting or conflict, have release with sex, can't stand the person, trying to figure out how to get rid of them until you want them again or until they want you. And like, you know, that was what I was drawn to. I did a lot of... Would it, would it be fair to say that chaos was an af- aphrodisiac? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, and I'm actually really good in, in that. It's the hardest thing. Like today I did inventory all day at work. <laughs> like, I've never done those kind of things my whole career. Um, so doing the things that are really important, but they're mundane, mm-hmm. are not easy for me. I really, my head just goes like, that's it. You've, you know, your your life is over. You're counting things. Like, you know, like, I, I just think that. I seek thrill and excitement and newness and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, and to answer the question better, like, I would say I don't know what I want. I think that's a good place to be. Like, to say what turns me on? Well, bad things turn me on. Taboo things turn me on and bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, no particular type. Right. Just whatever's wrong and bad and mm-hmm. dirty, because I always felt that way. It was always a secret thing. Right. It was always this personal, private, secret thing. But, you know, when it comes to, like, good things, you know, they're really hard. They're really hard because you have to be this damn stupid present. You have to be present for it. He's like, using air quotes. Fuck, yeah. yeah, present. Like, what does that mean? I'm present. I'm right here. Like, you know. Um, and you have to be you know, where you're at. And like, you know, like last night I came home from this rosary. My wife wanted to be with me because she, she did. She wanted to make time. She's like very methodical. And she's like, I'm making time for us. And this stuff that 
people dream of having that kind of treatment. And I'm just like, I just feel so sad. And like, you know, and we just like laid there and she held me and like, that was okay. And that was good. And I feel guilty. Because you feel like you should be responding differently. Oh, of course. Like, I feel like that selfish man who is not pleasing a woman sexually. Like, I find it incredibly hard to say like, no, like, I can't even say no. I'll just say like, I'm so sad and hope that she talks herself into not pursuing me sexually, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I still feel bad. I feel like it's like this, this thing that I just, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm abandoning her, killing her if I don't perform, mm-hmm. you know, when she wants me. And even that I'm pleased, you know, making sure that she knows that I'm pleased by her, that, that that's my job per se, you know? And, and it's really difficult because that's not true. That's not really how women are, mm-hmm. you know, or at least not my experience. In any regard, they are way more able to just be okay with an experience and be mm-hmm. there. And it's not about all this other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not the messages I got. Mm-hmm. It was just men are selfish. Men give women babies and beat them and leave them. Right. So you shouldn't be like that. <laughs> Kapow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it took me a while to realize that um, that they want me, <laughs> not necessarily my dick. Yeah. They want me paying attention, listening. Um, they, they want uh, to feel beautiful and wanted. Yeah. Listen to is the biggest thing, right? And yeah. It's so weird because we're taught as men. If we're not doing something or taking an action or telling them something, fixing something, the word fix is fine. But if if you fix is almost like you can get away from all the other things you're doing wrong by saying, oh, I'm trying to fix it. Right. But it's like, no, I'm just fucking saying anything other than tell me more about that. That's really great. You know, I appreciate what you're saying. Like we were just in a meeting earlier an hour ago. And we were going to let somebody go, and um, we are talking about how to deal with that. You're talking about the funeral for Julian? No, about work. work. My wife is my boss at work, actually. She's actually my boss at work. So Mm -hmm. um, she said, it could take six months to fill this role. And I said, I don't think so. And then I said, wait a minute. You know, I'm sorry. What you said is valid. It could take six months. You know, I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that you said that. It's literally, and leaving it at fucking that is so hard, but it's so fruitful. It literally, and I'm going to say it, it leads to blowjobs. <laughs> that leads to blowjobs. That's what does it. That's what makes a woman feel valid and heard. And I didn't say it will take six months. I just immediately go to making her wrong. Mm-hmm. Even if I say it the best way, it's like, I don't think so. It's like, no, right. well, wait a minute. What you said is valid. I hear you. Thank you for saying that. It's like, what the fuck? If you do that all day, it just leads to really good things. Right. You know, I say blowjobs because I mentor a lot of guys, right? Mm-hmm. And one guy, <laughs> one guy in particular, um, his wife just like a month ago called me and said, look, I, I can't fucking take it with this guy. I just cannot do this anymore. He's horrible. And I'd been telling him, you know, and we've been talking about it, but he didn't listen. I set him down with Hike, you know, another guy. And I said, look, she didn't say this to me, bro, but you're going to be getting divorced. So (laughs) you have two options as I see it. Get a great lawyer and start making a plan or 
change, you know? And I said, let's do some things, right? And the things were so mundane and so simple, you know, send your wife a text. And his text was highly directive and highly chauvinistic and highly, mm-hmm. you know, about pious even. And, and I said, no, 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 let's do something different. Then I wrote a text to my wife and it just said, simple thing, you know, we're really lucky to have you as a mom and a wife and a partner. All me and the kids are just so lucky that you do so much. Thank you. Just that. And he wrote something like that. And that he wrote, Thomas is grateful. Yeah, Thomas is grateful for you. <laughs> and then, um, you know, a couple days later, you know, she had a family situation and, and he has, he hates her family, right? Of course, because he's a man. You know, men have to hate everyone and be at odds with everyone. And I said, okay, this is just, I'm going to recommend you do this. So instead of saying, hope your dad's okay and I love you or something, say, I remember when I met your family and share a positive memory. Because human beings, I really believe we live by narrative. And our narrative is constantly changing in our mind. Gracie, hold that thought for one second while she gets her drama out. Speaking of chaos creator, Gracie, come. And, and, he, and, you know, it's funny. He came up with it. And he just said, you know, when I first met your family, we went to dinner at the house. And I remember that they asked me to say the prayer. And I felt so honored by that. And to not address what's going on now in the narrative, but just to connect the past to now in a positive way. And within a few days, his wife goes from literally hinting at divorce mm-hmm. to sending me handsome pictures of him in a group text with him saying, my husband's so handsome, you know, look at us and all this stuff. And I'm just like, bro, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess it's going pretty good. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, this leads to how we think we want to tell them to act. They will want to act that way towards right. somebody who treats them that way. And it seems so obvious <laughs> when you mention it, yet it's, it's not the, I think the control freak nature of not only people, but especially addicts yeah, and especially too. untreated addicts thinking <laughs> that you know, it's up to them to direct the world because everybody else just doesn't know. Well, it's it's it feels like betrayal when women tell you, like, why are you always trying to do what you think men are supposed to do? And like, you're well, not being grateful yeah, for my input. All, exactly, all we hear is you're a bad man, not, you know, w- what we could do instead. And, and it doesn't seem like, honestly, the first time I started behaving that way, I thought, She's going to look at me and go, who are you trying to fool, asshole? You're not listening to me. You're just telling me things, you know. But the truth is, if I just say those things, I am by default listening. And I'm saying them to myself. I do this all day with my daughters, with my wife, four daughters. And it's a lot because they have a lot of ideas. They're very woke. They're very, you know, I talk about that too, right, with Mm -hmm. the guys. It's like, you know. They don't need what I, my opinion, you know, right now is that women, for the most part, are asking you four things every time they talk to you. Are you going to disapprove of me as a person for what I'm saying right now? Do you think I'm wrong right, for what I'm mm-hmm. saying right now? Are you going to support me regardless of the outcome of what I'm saying right now? Um, and, you know, are you going to love me if I say this right now? And if you like hear everything they say that way, just how would you respond? 
It's like, oh, well, the water heater's broken. I want to get it replaced. I'm, I'm pissed off. This, that, and the other thing. You know, honey, I hear you. You know, hot water's important, and I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, what can we do? What do you think? You know, like... Now, talk about what goes on in your body and your mind, especially <laughs> when you first started saying that, because I think oh, that's man. important no, it to is. talk about how it doesn't feel natural. No, I feel... I feel literally attacked all day because, you know, she'll be telling me things that I absolutely know better than what she's saying. And my mind starts to tell me she's done it. She's crossed the line of good sense. And do you mean objectively you know better or subjectively you feel that you know better? No, like objectively. Like okay. meaning I know more about this physical thing because we do a lot of work together and we're working on our house all the time. And mm -hmm. she just speaks with authority about everything. <laughs> you know, and, and for her... She's a stoic. She reads stoicism out loud every morning. Like to her, she's unemotional and all this stuff. But I know she's emotional. You know, she speaks stoically about her emotions, right? <laughs> so, so when she's saying, oh, this is going to go wrong. That's going to happen. If we do this, it's going to break and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, and I learned this from my, from my marriage seven years ago, you know, ending was that the thing doesn't fucking matter. The water heater, the deck, the thing, the car, it doesn't matter. What matters is how are you going to treat this person mm -hmm. and what are they really talking about? What's really are they talking about? And it's like in the past, I would say, you're just being in fear. Like what the fuck? What she can just go like, I how many times have I tried that? And I thought a light bulb's going to go off her, over her head and say, oh, my God. He's so right. You're I'm going so to change. Smart. I'm not going to be in fear anymore. <laughs> now I'm in fear. You've diagnosed me successfully. I'm going to call my therapist and dismiss her. I don't need her anymore. Like, it's like, no, man. Like, if she's in fear, I have to believe it. And then how do you treat somebody you love who's in fear? More love. There's no other answer. You know, and... I don't do it perfectly at all. My wife will look at me like, you're really thinking some bad shit. And I'm like, you know, I'm just so grateful for you. And the thing is, I think the key is we pick people we don't like because we have attraction, right? Or we have, you know, some things in common. But like the truth is, not only do I like her, every one of my friends, I have integrated life. Like all my friends know my wife and deal with her in a real way. You know, like Brad's my sponsor and... Brad's done three floors for us. So he's sat with my wife and they've handed checks to each other and stuff like that. And all of them tell me when I have a problem and I go to them, dude, your wife's amazing. Shut the fuck up. Like, why, why is your head telling you? Every one of them tell me that. So if you're with somebody that isn't that great, what we typically do is we get them away from everybody because we subconsciously know that people are going to tell us that that person's really... Not great. So, but we want them, right? So we get them away from everyone. And we, there's all these traits, you know, of abuse or of like bad relationships that they have to be away from everybody. It has to be a closed circuit, right? Mm -hmm. So my life's integrated and all my friends tell me, I've never had one friend turn to me in five years and say, yeah, bro, you're right. She's really being an asshole right now. Never. Fucking five years. What are the chances of that? You know, like, and, and one of the big red flags when, when you're in a relationship with somebody is if they try to separate you from your friends and get you alone, because that is usually the part of some type of bra abuse, brainwashing yeah. and, and abuse. And I did that. I did that to my ex-wife. I, I didn't like her friends. I didn't 
like this person, I always had to say all these judgments, right? And it's like, and I don't know what I was thinking now. Like, I'm going to help her. She's going to see better things. But again, I just gave up on that. I just said, no more. You know, anybody that my wife is friends with, even if I have judgments in my head or whatever, I'm just like, this is an honored person that is important to my wife and, and that she cares about. And no matter how much trouble they cause in my life, I'm going to I'm gonna do my best to be supportive. And she does that for me. She does. Even when she gets mad, if I have friends that are troublesome or whatever, she respects me and supports me. And you're not going to get that. You're going to stay in the lower levels of relationships until you start doing it. Somebody has to do it first. Somebody has to be the example, you know. And sometimes she is, and I don't even see it. And then I think I am or... You know, but I'm trying, you know. So how do you handle situations where a line does need to be drawn, where a boundary needs to be set, where you need to practice self-care and say this is not acceptable with this friend or what, what you know, well, whatever? it's easy. It's like almost too easy, right? Because it doesn't seem like it could be that easy. So my wife can be friends with anyone she wants. I don't have to be in the room. Right. I can literally say, and, and it's it's the hardest thing to to. To remember when you're in a situation, hey, I'm not feeling perfect. I want to go lay down. Is that right. okay? Right. Do you want me here? Or to, or, or to hang up the phone and say, yeah, I just I don't have, have the bandwidth go. right now yeah. to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. But not even like what she's talking about, but just I'm I'm not feeling good. You know, when you say that, you let somebody off the hook. You let them off the hook that they don't have to take care of you. In a you good take way. Care of yourself. Yeah. But the way we talk about boundaries is like that we have to go tell somebody our boundary. A boundary is about myself. It's not about communicating it to someone. And there's times when you probably need to communicate. But I find that I'm like, oh, I want to go watch a movie. I'm exhausted. I'm going to go downstairs. You know, I'm going to go see someone. It's like the Al-Anon thing, right? Always focus on yourself. What that means is like, look for your own solution. We're just taught to go seek conflict. To go towards the conflict instead of walk away from it. I don't know. I mean, I can't. You think mean society? It. Yeah, just yeah. that you know. Or as men, I think you know. Especially as men, yeah, you like, know, bring the guns out, yeah. dominate. Yeah, and not even that. That like that we're abandoning people we love if we don't, you know, face the conflict that we're avoiding it. But you're right. not avoiding it. You know, you're just pausing you know and i think age helps probably a lot. yeah well talk let's talk, talk about the conflict that does need to be faced which is our personal demons and our our trauma and that's that's really the thing that's the thing that's always there that you always have mirrors all around you that you can see and go what the fuck what it's why is this still a problem for me why is this still so hard and yeah it is. And, you know, thankfully, like the, the best thing about mentoring or sponsoring or whatever we call it, like I call it mentoring for the world because they understand what mm -hmm. that means. Right. Just means I'm here to trying to help somebody. I'm not better than them or higher mm -hmm. or lower, just trying to help. And that it helps me see the dumb shit that I am not doing. Forget the negative. Like I'm not sending that simple message. Thanks for doing that. How's your day? Like those kind of things, because I see their bad behavior and it matches my thinking and it matches my bad behavior when it comes out. I'll never forget the first time in a year after I sponsored Hike, I called them. We were in a horrible fight. This is three years ago. I'm name calling 
we're yelling, all the stuff that like we haven't had any of for like two years. I think over two years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes, dude, why are you acting like this? This is how I act. This is horrible. <laughs> and I was like, I know, bro. I act the same way. You just have, you know, uh, your incidences are closer together. Mine are further apart. But, yeah, I mean, that's the benefit of working with others is you're constantly reminded of yeah. what your challenges are. But... <sighs> A big demon for you, at least from you know what you've shared with me and with our group, is anger management. Yeah. Talk so, about what led to you finally saying, I need some help. Well, so I was, I discovered my ex-wife was, you know, um, with someone else, right? And um, I don't even like to call it cheating anymore. While um, you were with her. Yeah, we were married and... and uh, she was off with this girl who she's now married to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I texted them earlier. I'm, I'm totally cool with them now. Um, <clears throat> and I remember I what I was honestly thinking at the time was, I want to kill them. Like, I want to murder them. And I didn't imagine myself actually murdering them, but I felt those strong feelings, those murderous feelings. And I had acted that way. I had postured like I was dangerous and... You know, with my ex-wife when we were fighting horribly while she was seeing this girl. Mm-hmm. I learned later that it's really simple. When you divest yourself from your relationship, you know, you, the fighting is just natural because, you know, she was elsewhere. She was somewhere mm-hmm. else. But I remember I was just like, I want to kill her. And and it was just this moment I had where I was like, okay, there is a God or there isn't a God. What What is it going to be, right? And I remember thinking... Okay, if there isn't a God, then I can kill her, I can kill myself, I can just blow shit up and like mm-hmm. end it all, right? And then I said, if there is a God, what would I do? And I just decided right then, for whatever reason, there is a God. I went home, and I got the phone book out, and I didn't know, I don't know how I was in recovery for so long, and I didn't understand that domestic violence or um, anger management is like a DUI class. Right, which everyone seems to know, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought people could just go and seek out help for anger. And that's what I did. I called him and I said, hey, um, I want to kill my wife and her lover. And um, I'm angry. And I had been. And in one moment, I kind of saw it all. I'd been abusive. I'd been emotionally a terrorist. And like, you know, and I had all these reasons why that made sense. And then in one moment, they didn't make sense anymore. And I just had to do something. And they said, come on in. And I had anger management therapy for well over a year. And it was after we were already getting divorced, I stayed because it was so helpful. Just the workbook was tremendous because it's full of information about what physically happens to you when you're angry. And from that seven years ago till now, I still have outbursts or I still have my things that that trouble me. Um but for the most part, I would say my kids are even resentful that I'm not mad anymore. That you don't engage? Well, not that I don't engage, but just that they grew up with a guy who was explosive. And I, I would see. get mad and I would like, you know, and be scary. Even if I didn't hit them or whatever, it was like I was scary, you know. Yeah. And now seeing me with my stepkids being really patient and really calm or whatever, they're just like, I didn't get that fucking guy. And they say that. They're just like, we didn't grow up with this guy. You know, and and that's painful, but like consider the alternative. I still get to be that guy. Like, 
you know, so the anger, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be with me, but there are tools. And then the other part of the program, which like really helps us is doing those amends, right? Going back to people you've had a conflict with Mm -hmm. and saying, Hey, I shouldn't act that way ever. That's not an answer. That's not the way to be. And just keep cleaning it up. I mean, there's no other, unfortunately, there's no other way. Right. Right. And at first, I don't know about you, but at first it feels like, oh, this is everything I don't want to be. It feels like I'm, uh, you know, giving up, uh, giving this other person power. And then very quickly it starts to feel good and clean. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I I don't know. For me, like when I get mad and I like show anger at somebody, I feel shut down for a while. I feel like first thing I say usually to hike is I'm never making amends to that motherfucker ever. Fuck him. This is the time and hike laughs at me. And he's just like, yeah, you saying that right now. But I know you, you always make amends to people, right? And I'm just like, fuck, I have to do, I have to do a 10 step now over (laughs) some guy that pissed me off. Right. And it's like, and it always works. It always works, but I have to do it. I have to write it down. I have to be willing. I have to be honest. I have to, you know, what am I trying to protect, right? With all the anger, how hurt I am. It's never anything but how hurt I am or how scared I am or, you know. Sometimes, and this is really bad, it's to, it's justice, right? This concept of justice. Yeah. I'm out in the world and it's like, oh, and it's not even selfish. It's like, I'll protect other people. You know, but the truth is, when I really look at it, I want to be a fucking literal hero. I want the news to find me. I beat some guy up who really deserved it. You know, because mm-hmm. didn't we grow up that way? Like, yeah. look, man. Arnold Those are the movies we loved as 14-year-old yeah. boys. Yeah, it was like the guy who was the best alpha, got the girl, won the trophy, whatever. He had to beat someone's ass who really deserved it, and everyone cheered for him. Yeah. And it's like, I grew up thinking that was, you know... The way it was, and it's not, man. It's not. One of the best things I ever heard was this guy said, you know, um, if a clown is performing, don't interrupt them. Let them finish their show. Um, If you interrupt them, they may start over from the beginning, right? And if you apply that to life, when you're in situations where you think, oh, boy, this person is acting out, and I need to intercede, right? And Mm so Al-Anon says... um, you know, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? And does it need to be said by me? Right? So usually if I just run through those things in my head in a short time while somebody's acting out and, you know, in public or even just in t- a group of three people, um, it's, it's, it's already gone beyond that. Or somebody else has said something or they've been distracted into something else. And so, you know, if I can answer those three questions, then yeah, I need to say something. But at that point, I'm thinking rationally. Right. I'm not reacting anymore. You're not making go, it about you. I can go, yeah, you know, I don't know about that. You know, let's let's table that and come back because I don't know about what you're saying. Like, we'll talk about it later. You know, I learned that in my job. It's and, like, and what a great tool it is to just take a break from something, <laughs> to just say, oh, I'm not going to make a decision right now. Yeah. When I started doing that at work, my wife was just like, she came and was just like, I'm so impressed. Like you, you know, that was something that was annoying what was happening and you just shut it down in a non-shaming, just like, hey, we need to move forward and we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about that after. Like, it's like, you know, 
again, like the conflict, we're taught to look for conflict. What are all the movies in the 80s about? You got to find the bad guy, right? <laughs> you got you to go confront him. You got to like all this stuff. And it's like, it's not, man. There's just such good things happening when you don't engage, you know, in all the people call it drama, but that's not really, it's really like, cause I'm in it. I'm in the drama. If I'm describing the drama, I'm in it. I'm not watching it. I'm in there, you know, and I don't know. It's a good life, man. It really is. It's like a good deal. And, you know, I'm surrounded by so many good, wonderful people. And like, you know, you said that you gave me that compliment. It's hard for me to hear compliments and guys look up to me and stuff like that. But the only reason they do, right, is that I do things that that make that happen. And anyone can do them. You can be a greeter. You can call three, four people a day and say, how are you feeling? How are you doing? But when you do those things, you become immediately popular because people associate you with feeling good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool you know, thing. It's all the books, all the how to win friends and influence people. They all say the same stuff. Be considerate, be kind, you know, talk to people, treat people like they're important. I mean, you know. It's funny how it goes back to what we were taught in kindergarten. Yeah. It's like what we got taught in kindergarten. Share. Is <laughs> share, be kind, yeah. you know, be considerate. And then the movies reverse all of that. Yeah. We just think it won't work. You know, yeah. I remember, I got to say this, one of the first things I heard in Al-Anon when I was like in a death war with my ex-wife during our divorce um, was, you know, I would, I called my sponsor. I'd have panic attacks, right? Full on. When the phone would ring and it'd be her, I would have a panic attack, which sucks because she would call me all the time. And he had me take a picture of my feet and I put the picture of my feet on the screen as the, the um, picture that came up when she called. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he would say, look at your feet. And I'd say, okay, so where are your feet? And I'd say, oh, my feet are in Paul's house. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you eaten breakfast? Yeah. Did you sleep indoors last night? Yeah. You're going to eat dinner tonight? Yeah. You're going to sleep indoors? Yeah. Okay. Are you in any imminent danger at this moment right now? Not later, but now. No. Um, okay. Are you under attack? No. You know, these kind of things, right? Mm -hmm. And you get a little list, whatever your list is. You go through it, and before I would answer the phone, I would look at my feet, and I would do this, and then I would go, hello, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if if I answered. And so then I started doing that, and I felt better a little bit, mm -hmm. not fully, and then I would call him and say, okay, she asked me all this shit, and we started fighting over that. And I go, what do I do, you know? And he would say, why don't you not answer? And I'm like, well, she's going to get madder, you know? And he said, why don't you say this? And he told me what to say, and I did it. And it was the first time I did it. I'll never forget it. It was a miracle in my life. She said, well, you have to move this, and you have to get that, and what the fuck, and you owe me this, and you didn't say that, and, like, all this stuff. She said, uh, what do you have to say? And I said what he had told me to say. I said, you know, you said a lot of things. They're important things. And I really heard everything that you said. That's all I said. And then she said, yeah, but what do you think? And I said, you know, I think that you said so many important things that I need to think about them and tell you later because I just need to really mull over what you said. And she said, okay, great. 
And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck just happened? I thought there's no way that could ever work, you know, with the, the relationships that I right. set up, made, <laughs> enforced, and engaged in the drama, so to speak. You know, it's like it worked so good. And that works all the time because it's a fake pause that becomes a real pause that you then can think about what they said, whether it's conflict or not. And again, it's just... And you also have a chance to run it by somebody else. And even sometimes just hearing the words come out of your mouth, you suddenly understand the answer before that person even responds. It's just that you. pause. You know, that pause is everything. It yeah. just kills so much of our problems to not give answers, react, mm -hmm. say And anything. a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's amazing how many things a deep breath can make better. Well, all the anger management stuff talks about it medically, how our bodies medically process cortisol, adrenaline, right? Mm -hmm. And um, medically, there's things you can do, like, you know, walking away or taking a 10-second pause or whatever that medically change your body and your mind how they're operating. Mm -hmm. So if you can work that into your behavior patterns, you know, it just becomes... It's it's miraculous. I can't believe how I act nowadays. I, can't, I just can't. How do I do this? You know, I look great, but I'm in my head. I'm just again. You said bring it up earlier. I think horrible things. I mean, literally to be real, I think like, you know, this dude needs to be fucking smacked. I need to get in his face. Like over nothing. Over like the dumbest shit. You know, like hike and me will be working on something and he'll take a tool out of my hand. Because he's like alpha, right? And he'll start doing it, right? And the truth is, he's better at all tools than me. He's like got a mechanic hand, right? Um, and I have one gimpy hand also. But that bothers me. And I'm just like, I'll have the thought, I need to tell this motherfucker to give me the tool back and respect me. You know? <laughs> I'm just like, why would I say that? Like, what would that do? You know? Like, that's stupid, you know? But that pause, it's so hard, though. When you can't do it, you can't. You're just off and running. It's Especially like when your central nervous system is firing. It's so hard. It feels like sitting on a volcano. Yeah, but my Aladon sponsor, uh, he told me, he said, you know, he literally said, all you have to do, and he showed me physically, he'd go, oh, I was it? And he'd just like, I'll be right back. And he just would run the other direction, be waving his hands, say, oh, be, hold on one sec, hold on, okay, and, mm -hmm. and just run from your own anger, right? Because yes. no one's going to attack you when you're, oh, I'll be right back, you know. Even if they're attacking you, they have to stop. You've called time out because you're not aggressing them. Right. You know, and I've done that. I've ran from my anger of like, I got to fucking get away from this. I'm going to flip out. What happens? Five minutes later, I have clarity. Or I call someone. And then I have compassion. You know, like it's, but it's easier said than done. I think you just have to fail a lot and practice and make amends and fail again and practice and make amends. But... <sighs> What else? That's it, buddy. That's it. <laughs> That's it, man. We covered some some really important stuff. Um, oh, Gracie. What uh, What is the website for uh, Thomas Hayes Studio? ThomasHayesStudio.com. Yeah. Go check his stuff out. It's uh, it's really cool. It's really cool. And, buddy, thank, uh, thank you for being my friend, and thank you for being thank so you. honest about uh, your demons. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there are. Thanks, buddy. Thank you.
so open and honest. Love, love having people like that in my life. Uh, and be sure to check out his furniture. Uh, his website is Thomas Hayes uh, Studio, and his Instagram handle is Thomas Hayes Studio, and Hayes is spelled H-A-Y-E-S. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Alias. And he writes... I have love addiction to the point that I've only made friends with good-looking women I plan to have sex with because I can't see myself having a female friend due to growing up in an all-male school. I think that all of them hate me because it's more comfortable for me to believe someone hates me than they like me. And whenever they say they love me or like me in any capacity, I feel a sense of disgust to the point of almost dry heaving. I fear that I'll never be able to work. Uh, through this, and my love addiction and love avoidance power duo will prevent me from ever having a romantic relationship. Thank you for that. Uh, I I relate uh, to a lot of that in that I have gone through that that phase, and I feel like because of going to support groups, um, I've I've been able to move beyond that. And I, you know, I hesitate to use a word like, you know, completely healed from that or, or whatever, but I, I, I enjoy the feeling of someone, uh, in a, in a partnership telling me that they, that they love me. It feels good. Whereas before I used to feel like you felt of just like, how, how low are your fucking standards that you love me? So, um, I think, yeah, broken fucking record, but finding a support group around around this topic, I think, could really, really help you. You might also try reading the book uh, Facing a Love Addiction by P.M. Melody. A lot of people get a lot of uh, help from that. So just some just some thoughts, but buddy, you are, you are not alone. You are not alone. This is from the Fear Survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Valentine. And he writes, I fear everything I have realized recently. I'm getting to know myself after numbing out for 20 years, in parentheses, substance abuse. And boy, do I feel behind. I fear that when I finally can breathe with ease, fully within myself, I will be on my deathbed. But I do look forward to that feeling. I can visualize smiling, looking up from the hospital bed as one tear of joy sheds. And then I can finally let go and go on into the next journey, wherever the fuck that may be. 
I fear that only by physically dying will I ever be free, basically. I just got tossed a shitty, mediocre hand full of anxiety, shame, and loneliness. I fear that I will forever be fighting this hand instead of living with it and loving every shitty part of it. I fear my present reality. So by accepting it, I fear what I will do. Boy, that's very, very deep and meta. Thank you for that. And I've often had that feeling too that <laughs> that the day's going to arrive where I'm like, I finally got my shit together. Cancer. Yeah. Yeah, God knows what uh, what lies beyond this life. I hope it's, you know, sometimes I think about reincarnation and, you know, what would be the thing that would be good to come back as. <laughs> this one is probably not very healthy, but uh, an asteroid in space that can <laughs> never... Never be approached by other people's needs or experience pain. Just weightlessness and travel. Yeah, I might I might need to bring that one up with my therapist. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a guy who calls himself talented, but at what cost? And uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? He writes, the first time I made my therapist visibly sad was when she asked me what I like about myself physically, and I couldn't come up with a single thing. I'm a straight man in my mid-20s. I'm 5'3", chubby, and I started going bald when I was 16. There are many things I like about myself. I'm a good friend, a sensitive, thoughtful person. When I'm interested in something, I go really deep into it. These are all qualities that I think are desirable in a partner, but I can't imagine anyone being attracted to me. I can't remember ever feeling particularly good about my body. In fact, I hardly ever think of myself as a physical being at all. I feel like I'm a floating brain that's stuck in this weird suit. I feel like this is the time in my life when I'm supposed to feel the most comfortable in my body when I'm supposed to be dating and having sex, yet that feels so completely foreign to me. Thank you for sharing that. And I especially appreciate you sharing that as a man, because I think society a lot of times thinks uh, that uh, men don't have that anxiety, that we don't look at ourselves in the mirror and pick ourselves apart. Uh, this is from the fear survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Paradigm. And he writes, I'm afraid of my dad. I'm afraid that one day he will just waltz into my room while I'm sleeping with one of his guns and shoot me in the head without any hesitation. He's a narcissist. And the more arguments I have with him, the more I realize how easy it is for him to hurt other people. The probability of him hurting me physically, in my mind, it goes up and I get paranoid. I realize that the only thing holding him back from murder is the law and his ego. I know my fears are technically not logical, yet I find myself struggling to sleep at night because of my stupid intrusive thought. It just feels so real to me because I know it can happen. He's told me so many times that I'm his big, biggest problem in his life and that he wishes he could get rid of me. I don't know what lengths he would go to to do that. What I'm most afraid of 
as, as if my fear ever came true is the damage it would do to the rest of my family. And by the way, this is a kid. He's 17. My poor fucking family tortured at the hands of my father who constantly abuses us all. I don't want to leave them alone without any support with this maniac because I know damn well they would crumble like a sad sandcastle hitting a wave. I'm the only one in my family that pushes everyone to better their mental health. I was the first and only person in my family to actually get therapy. Right now, I'm the only person my mentally ill older brother trusts to talk about his feelings with. I know it's not my responsibility, but I can't leave him. Maybe that's what's been keeping me alive all these years. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. That is fucking heavy. And that was sponsored by the NRA. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself... What does she call herself? Dupe. She's in her 20s. She identifies as queer. Uh, and then she adds, uh, don't know yet, figuring that out in therapy. We. Uh, she says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my brother molested me when I was about 13 and I was about 10. The acts themselves honestly were not traumatic. They felt good or whatever. But upon my finding out that siblings aren't supposed to do those things with each other, my brother turned to violent denial of what happened. He turned on me hard. He belittled, terrorized, degraded verbally, physically hurt, and rejected me. I became the object of rage. No shit. No kid should either have inside them or be victim to. It was very confusing and awful for many years. I turned to carving the words he called me into my skin. I became a liar and completely isolated because I thought I had to protect this shame of his. But I don't anymore. I've told my parents who he is and what he's capable of. And they are fighting this battle for me. That's so amazing. They recognize how serious and bad the things he put me through are, and they are not allowing him to do his classic response of belittle, laugh at, and minimize the person with hurt feelings. And he is no longer in my life at all, so I finally feel protected and acknowledged. That is such an amazing outcome and so fucking rare for me to be able to read. I, I, I would say... That is about 10% of the times when I, when I read somebody going to a, about somebody going to a parent and reporting sexual or any other kind of abuse by somebody, especially a sibling, uh, 90% of the time, the parents minimize it, want the kid to get over it as soon as possible, or say that they're lying. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. She writes, the emotional abuse was probably the worst part because kid doesn't know what is truth and what is hatred. I really thought I was the things he thought I was. Fat, ugly, annoying, stupid, useless, worthless, disgusting, piece of shit. But nope. I'm actually a sweetheart and a badass. So fuck him. He was also physically violent many times, mostly choking. Uh, 
uh, I remember, but hitting also and just domination, question mark, like pinning me down and just kind of showing me his strength and my weakness. He sounds like a straight up fucking psychopath. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? I lived in his world for many, many years. I'm 21 now. I was nine-ish when the abuse started. I kept his secret as my own for that long, and because of that, everything looked great on the outside. I learned pretty quick what I was and wasn't allowed to speak about and how I was supposed to behave, so I've done that very well and just made the most of it. We had good times. Honestly, they're becoming tinted in my memories now, but he is very charismatic and funny, and he could be caring if it served him, so there were good times, I guess. Yeah, that sounds definitely like uh, qualities that a narcissist has. They are usually intelligent and charismatic, and they present one face to society and another face to the people that are close to them. Uh, Darkest thoughts. Honestly, I have quite a pure headspace. I don't believe in giving stock to thoughts that are hurtful to me or anyone else because that doesn't align with my principles so they kind of just aren't registered if they ever happen. Uh, deepest secrets, uh, see above. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Uh, mm, I like the idea of being good for my partner, like getting wet for them and coming for them and stuff. I have this fantasy of being fingered while I try to tell my partner about my day, and they keep asking mundane questions that I increasingly cannot answer until I come. Uh, writing that, I feel pretty fine. It's kind of fun. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to just be super honest in all my relationships, but I find there are different rules I never learned for romantic relationships. I don't want to scare people off, but also it's just easier if there's no ambiguity about expectations. I guess I'm working on learning the rules in that arena and practicing being truthful but not oversharing. And I think that's something that's really common for people who were raised in upside-down, boundaryless um, environments. What, if anything, do you wish for? The romantic love I can imagine myself being a part of. Gentle and supportive, respectful and expansive. Have you shared these things with others? Yeah, everyone wants me to meet someone. It'll happen. Hey, hey. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good! Exclamation point. Excited about the future. Thankful to have the clarity I presently have and to the amazing people I choose to have in my life. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. There are rules about how many of us may or may not treat another person. Always remember that there is nothing that can make breaking those rules warranted. So if someone is breaking the rules of respect, compassion, and perspective, and they're telling you that you deserve the breaches, know that they are absolutely wrong and you do not have to believe them. High fucking five. No, you know what? High 10. High 10. 
This is just um, an excerpt from a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself dazed and confused. And um, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about my spouse dying. I really do not want that to happen, but we have been in an abusive, shitty relationship for a long time. I can't bring myself to leave because I've been emotionally abused by pretty much every person in my life. I thought I would leave when he hit me. I didn't. I thought I would leave if he did something close to cheating. I didn't. Darkest secrets. No one around me knows about my marriage. I don't know what to do. I want to leave. I'm scared of his reaction, our mutual friends, my family, his family, and everyone that thinks we are perfect. I know I deserve more, but I'm worried about hurting him and or him hurting himself after I go. I already feel too much guilt to leave, so if he killed himself, I'm not sure I'd recover. My life feels so dark. I've been having suicidal ideations. I know that is worse than the uncomfortable hell ahead with divorce, but I feel I can't hurt anyone and hurting myself is easier. My norm maladaptive bullshit coping mechanisms like drinking, smoking pot, and eating disorders are no longer working. So the pain has come crashing down on me like a fucking anvil in a Roadrunner cartoon episode. Fuck. Thank you for that. I think there's a lot of people that have some version of of what you are feeling. And it is a shitty fucking place to be. You know, being being groomed to emotionally take care of people around us, you know, being parentified or um, being the child of an alcoholic, it sets you up for uh, that awful feeling when you're in a room and you feel like it is up to you to make everybody happy, to to be the mediator, to help people get along. It's, oh, it's such... A gigantic weight to carry through our lives. Um, and then finally, I'm going to read this happy moment by uh, Dot. And it does not start out happy. So just know that it does, it does get better. Uh, Dot writes, I was born on a Wednesday in May of 1989. The youngest of four children to parents in their early 20s. Parents with a lot of trauma and few of the skills needed to raise a healthy person, let alone four. I had congenital cataracts at birth, but it was not noticed until I was four years old. My mother always told me I would get an inch from a guest's face to say, hi, my name is Dorothy. I had double cataract removal surgery at age four, an experience I do not remember but feel was profoundly impactful to my emotional development. How could it not be? My sister tells me that mom used to bake and take us to the park all the time. We had dinner every day, clean clothes, and a sense of normalcy. Things went south when my father's addiction led to an arrest for armed robbery, also sparking the fire of addiction in my mother. I wanted to cling to my mom for the love and comfort one would hope for, but she was gone a lot. She left us alone for days at random babysitter's houses. My oldest sister resorted to stealing food for my middle sister and I. 
She was 10. I became responsible for making my own lunches and finding clean school clothes every day around age 7. It wouldn't get done otherwise. Mom wasn't around, and even if she was home, she wasn't home. I had to go to school because that's where I felt a part of something that seemed normal. I was safe and fed. I was noticed. I was a big fan of hanging out at the library as a child. I loved the attention and interaction I received from many a kind librarian. I won the summer reading program three years in a row. I was kind of a big deal. I was considered a good kid until about 12 when I started smoking pot with my sister and her friend. By 8th grade, I was expelled for bringing Oxycontin, marijuana, and cigarettes to school. The school officials were shocked at the amount of contraband I had shoved in the the pocket of my cargo shorts. This type of thing should never have happened, especially when the students are 13. Drugs were normalized in my home. My mother had a healthy prescription pill addiction and wore her medications in a bag around her neck so no one would steal them from her purse. Wow. There were so many times I would find my mom asleep in a corner or passing out while cleaning or cooking. Go to bed, mom, was commonly shouted by all. I was often given the message that any feeling or problem could be fixed with a pill, powder, or plant. My mom bought me cigarettes at 12 and gave me crack cocaine for the first time that same year. My home life was pretty chaotic, obviously. I lived in a fourplex with one apartment that dealt drugs to the remaining three apartments. My two-bedroom apartment was inhabited by eight, and each member of the family was volatile nearly every day. My brother had bed sheets hung, hung up in the living room to function as a third bedroom where he and his girlfriend slept. So essentially, we were st- stricken to our rooms in the hallways to the kitchen and bathroom. My cousin slept on the couch. My sister, her boyfriend, and I shared a room. My mother and stepdad had the other room. At 14, it became a better option to pack a backpack and exit the situation. I spent the next seven years homeless, sleeping under stairs, in doorways, and under bridges. I remember a night where I slept in an alcove right outside this building. I remember huddling under all the clothing I owned with my space blanket, listening to the pouring rain, wishing I knew what to do. I spent a lot of time walking, walking to keep warm, walking because I had nowhere to go, walking in what felt like circles. Occasionally, a warm reprieve was granted by a benevolent waitress at Leroy's. During her regular shift, this lady saw me walking around Midtown, panhandling, and felt pity on me. Once a week, she worked graveyard, and I could stay all night if I could panhandle enough for a cup of coffee. She would even let me sleep in one of the booths sometimes. I began getting into legal trouble around 18 with petty theft and shoplifting. I was stealing to survive, and part of survival for me was drinking. My drinking was out of control. By my 21st birthday, I was beyond all human aid and spiraling fast. By that time, I was going in and out of jail with increasingly severe penalties each time I was booked. Each time I woke up in the Anchorage jail, 
My resolution to change grew stronger, but I had no tools. I didn't know how to live life, sober or drunk for that matter. It was painful just to be alive during these years. After several probation violations, I officially, I was officially labeled a felon. That was my wake-up call. I knew I couldn't continue living my life in the way I had been living. I thought my life was over because of my new label. I attempted suicide a dozen or so times, but could never seem to take enough pills or cut deep enough to do the job. So I settled for a bottle of cheap vodka and a straight razor to my inner calf to ease the pain. I've got some pretty impressive scars all these years later. During one of these bouts, I was idly waiting for my favorite radio show, Loveline, to start. It was a Sunday night, and before Loveline, there was a local recovery radio show. Every other time, I turned that shit off. Why would I want to hear that when I'm drinking? But this night, I listened. I heard a woman telling my story. I was gutted. The totality of my situation hit me for the thousandth time. The host of the radio show said, If any, anyone out there with a drinking problem needs help, please call. I called. I expected very little, knowing, in fact, that I overcorrected. No one heard my cry for help anyway. But lo and behold, this woman from the radio actually called me repeatedly to offer me a way out of the hole I was in. I finally admitted defeat and I was introduced to a new way of life. One, with the possibility I could be free from the bondage of addiction. At first I was convinced it was all a cult or something, but I sure didn't have any other ideas, so I asked this woman for help. That was 10 years ago this November. Since getting sober at 23, I've earned a degree in paralegal studies and another in psychology. I had an amazing attorney give me a chance as an intern after school. I thought getting a job in the legal field with my record would be impossible. I'm a convicted felon after all. But this woman let me get my foot in the door. I'll never forget the call I got after my interview. A seemingly nonchalant voice said, just don't steal from me and I'll give you a shot. I worked for this woman for six years and learned just how much I could do with this noggin. I've been working in the legal field for eight years now. I'm the first member of my entire family to graduate college. I'm living alone in an apartment the size of my childhood home where all eight of us lived. I realized how far I've come while sitting on my kitchen floor alone. So grateful I didn't get what I wanted in my 20s because I'd be dead. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. That, uh, that was amazing. And congratulations on your, your sobriety. Um, God, I just love reading and hearing people tell stories about finding light. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, uh, just never forget that there is help out there. 
It's just that, ah, oh, that fucking terrifying first step of saying, I can't do this on my own. It's, it's hard and it's humbling, but it is. On the other side, it can be really, really beautiful and fulfilling and amazing. And uh, just never forget you're not alone. And, uh, and thanks, for, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.